Thank you, Sersha, for that beautiful song. Always nice to hear her voice, isn't it? So happy Sabbath one more time. And I also would like to welcome our listeners on WAYW 93.5. If anybody's listening, we're so glad you are. And here today we have Women's Ministry Emphasis Sabbath. And my name is Ida Rona Segi. And I'm going to present God's word to you this morning with my sister Du later on. I just wanted to tell you that Sabbath is always so refreshing. I'm going to start out with that and just tell you, isn't Sabbath a refreshing day for you? You know, last night, you know, Fridays can be hectic sometimes, can they? You know, you try to get everything done and ready. And my heart was just so sad because I looked outside and our grass was very, very bad looking, you know, in a bad shape. It was turning yellow and a couple of days we haven't watered and, you know, I'm already worried about our water bill. <laughs> um, but I just didn't have the strength to go outside. And as I was finishing up the dishes in the kitchen, um, I prayed a couple of times. I said, Lord, I know there's no rain in the forecast. I know that I don't even see a single cloud. But could you have compassion on my grass <laughs> and the flowers that we planted in the spring? Can you send some rain? And you know, I went into, later on, I went into my office and I, you know, read through my notes and then I finally went to bed. And then my husband said, do you hear that? I said, what? He said, there's rain. It was raining. I don't know where it came from, but it immediately lifted my spirit. And you know, it spoke to me because I said, God refreshes even nature for Sabbath. That's, that's what I heard God saying. It's not only you, because you can do it, I'll take care of it. It was a beautiful way to begin the Sabbath and then go and have some rest. So I'd like for you to pray with me, if you would, if you could bow your heads one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, blessed day that we can come together and turn our eyes on you and learn from you. And just to know that you are right here with us, as Jesus promised when we gather in his name, that you are there. Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to come into our hearts and just light your fire right there. And Lord, as always, I just pray that you will use me as your channel, nothing else, just a spokesperson for Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. If I ask you how many of you are afraid of this dark, are you brave enough to raise your hand that you're afraid of the dark? Anybody? Oh, I see some hands. Okay. See, those are the brave ones that actually can acknowledge that they don't like to be in the dark. But most children, especially children, um, tend to be afraid of the dark. Darkness, by definition, is the absence of light. And in the absence of light, we feel uneasy, sometimes even afraid. Seeing what's around us makes us feel safe. That is why many people, and I had never seen any of these until I moved to this country, but now I think I see them more around the world, but they have little nightlights, you know, in your bathrooms, in the hallways, I know our grandson has little glow-in-the-dark stickers on his wall, and um, 
that helps him when he's first laid down to bed uh, to soften the darkness. We had a family tradition around Christmas time. Now, don't worry, it's not a Christmas story. <laughs> it's only June. But this tradition we had that we did as a family on Christmas Eve. Having come from Europe, we decorated our tree on Christmas Eve. And so when our children were very young, we uh, would send them into their room, and my husband would go with them. And there, you know, play and occupy them while I was decorating the tree and putting on the lights and then the presents under the tree. Well, you know, the first time we did this, um, you know, they didn't know what was going on, but we told them, you know, just stay put. And after I was finished, we turned off all the lights in the house. So there was darkness in their room, there was darkness in the hallway, there was darkness in the living room, and in the winter, you know, winter nights can be very dark in Michigan, <laughs> where we used to live. And so when the tree was ready, I signaled to my husband, and he said, okay, children, and then he opened the door, and they were let out. Well, they weren't sure what to expect. All they could see was, well, nothing, you know, it was dark. And then um, one of them detected a little bit of faint light because the Christmas tree lights were glowing. So they started slowly, cautiously walking towards the living room. And sure enough, when they got there, they discovered that the house wasn't dark after all because there was a glorious tree lit up and how happy they were, would be, they were when they discovered it wasn't just the tree, but there were some, some boxes wrapped in wrapping paper and it was all for them. You know, as scary as physical darkness may be, there is a darkness that is much more frightening than a dark room or a dark corner. And about this darkness that the prophet Isaiah channels the words of the Lord, and we read the first verse, but let's read the second verse also in Isaiah chapter 60. If you'd like, you can go uh, in your Bibles and read along with me. I'm going to be reading Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 2, See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. The Lord describes the earth as covered with thick darkness, and thick darkness being over the peoples. Isaiah is addressing a nation that will go into the darkness of Babylonian captivity some 120 years after the prophet's ministry. He knows that Israel has suffered many a dark period in the past, such as the Egyptian bondage and the Assyrian assault. To a people so used to living in the fear of darkness, to a people who seem to have lost all hope, the prophet predicts freedom from fear, hope in the midst of despair. He seems to be telling them, darkness shall come, but it need not envelop you forever. The night of hopelessness must give way to the bright and glorious dawn of sunrise. The promise and the challenge of God is this, arise, shine. Come out of fear, 
Let darkness of abuse and injustice flee. Shine in the glory of the light that comes from God and Him alone. There is hope of light for a darkened world because a special light is promised to come, the light of God's glory. The Apostle John describes us this light in the Gospel of John. If we turn to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, we read the first three verses. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man. And I think John probably would include all men, women, and children, every human being. So John says that the life of our Creator, Jesus Christ, is our light. It is the life of Jesus that, he, that revealed the glory of God. Jesus, the light of the world, has risen upon us. He showed us the glory of God. When Thomas asked Jesus, remember, to show them the Father, what did Jesus answer? You have seen me, you have seen the Father. The pillars on which God's government and glory rest are, upon, are agape and liberty, love and freedom. Apart from these, there is only ruin and bondage. Jesus came to this world for this very reason. He was anointed by God's Spirit to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Have we made progress since ancient times? Have we moved to a higher level? Thanks to the shining light of the Word of God and for the sacrifice of the followers of Scripture and the reformers who stood firm against all opposition and darkness. Yes, we can say that humanity has made some strides. But look around today. We live in an age where knowledge has increased and the world has shrunk to our fingertips. Laptops, smartphones, tablets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all things smart and social. However, in the midst of so much progress in knowledge and communication, there is a darkness that is repulsive and frightening. A darkness that cuts across nationality, age, education, culture, and profession. A darkness that challenges the humanity of each one of us and diminishes the spirituality of all of us, particularly those of us who have taken the name Christian or Seventh-day Adventist. Agape and liberty, love and freedom are those principles that Satan has been attacking throughout the ages he hates God, and by hurting God's people, he knows he can hurt God. Sickness, oppression, all forms of abuse, injustice, and poverty are clearly an attack on God's heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 18, an enemy has done that. Is our world covered in darkness? 
As a woman as, and as one involved in women's ministry, I suggest to you that as long as one in three women continues to experience some kind of abuse in her life, darkness is in the world. That as long as women are subjected to genital mutilation, childhood marriages, dowry oppression, honor killings, rape, physical and verbal abuse, workplace discrimination, appallingly, even in our pastors' homes and in our colleges, darkness is in the world. That as long as 1.2 million children are trafficked around the world every year, darkness is in the world. As I mentioned, today is Women's Ministries Emphasis Day. And you know the motto of Women's Ministries is touch a heart, reach the world. There are six challenging issues that Women's Ministries at the General Conference has identified as major issues that afflict women globally. These are abuse, poverty, health, workload, education, and illiteracy. So number one, abuse and violence. Global statistics show that one in three women experiences physical and sexual violence in her lifetime. Of the 1.2 million children trafficked every year, 80% are girls. An enemy has done this. As a result of the global outcry on this issue, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, also called ADRA, and the Department of Women's Ministries launched the End It Now advocacy campaign in October of 2009 to bring an awareness and to stop violence against women and girls. Since that time, seven departments of the World Church formed a coalition of ensuring that End It Now remains an active and vital initiative of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. These departments include children's ministries, education, family ministries, health ministries, ministerial association, women's ministries, and youth ministries. Today, our challenge is End It Now. Number two, poverty. Of the 1.2 billion people around the world living in poverty, 70% are women. Poverty seems to have put on a feminine face. An enemy has done this. To remove that scar is our challenge today. Number three, threats to health. Hazards to women's health include emotional, social, and physical threats brought about by social, political and economic factors. The quality of a woman's health directly impacts her life and her family's well-being. Poor health undermines a woman's ability to be a fully productive participant in God's work. About one in five women develop depression at some point in life. According to the World Health Organization, depression is projected to become the second leading contributor to the global burden of disease by 2020. An enemy has done this. To remove that unacceptable burden is our challenge today. Number four, workload. Women around the world in all cultures face the problem of work overload. Women are faced with the challenge of doing two-thirds of the world's work, resulting in long work days, low wages, high hours of housework and childcare, leaving little time for personal devotion, rest and recreation, 
and social and spiritual growth. An enemy has done this. To balance work and leisure, to equalize home and workplace, to offer time for growth of the mind and solace of the Holy Spirit is our challenge today. And number five, education. Educating, education for all is a basic human right. For women to achieve better health, nutrition, and quality of life for themselves and their families, they need equal access to education. Unequal or no access to education is the enemy's doing. To see that girls have access to education at all levels is our challenge today. And number six, illiteracy. Of 163 million illiterate young people in the world, 63% are women. Even in affluent countries, girls receive less education and training than boys. An enemy has done this. Illiteracy is powerfully linked to low social status, poverty, and poor health. Lack of literacy skills traps women in the cycle of poverty with limited options for economic development, sentencing them and their children to chronic poverty. More importantly, literacy skills provide women the gift of reading God's word. To provide each woman the key to the world of literacy and self-development is our challenge today. Our church here at Savannah First represents our global church. As you could see, we had several women here just a few minutes ago reading in various languages. Many of us have come from different parts of the world. Some of us have seen or experienced firsthand many of the issues that women are faced with, even in, even in their own country. So at this time, I'd like to invite my sister, Du, to come up here and join me because she's going to share a little bit about her experience and about her background. Is this microphone on? Okay. Happy Sabbath, everyone. So this is Du, and I cannot pronounce her uh, real name, but she says the translation of her name is Du. So tell us your name and where you're from, and just a little bit about your background, please. Okay, so my name is Shabnam. Shabnam exactly means Du, D-E-W. Um, so thank you, first of all, giving me the opportunity uh, to stand here and to share part of the story of my country's uh, woman's life. So do tell us first where that country is. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the country I come from is Pakistan. I was born and raised in Pakistan as a Seventh-day Adventist. My grandfather was a pastor in a Seventh-day Adventist church. I spent some of my years in UK studying and then 14 years ago I moved to USA and finally settled down here uh, in Miami. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Is it better now? Okay. Yes. So finally, I settled down in Miami, and um, it's been 14 years now. And so now you are in Savannah. <laughs> yes. Now I'm in Savannah. It's less than a year now. 
Okay, so do as a woman who grew up in Pakistan, uh, how would you generally describe the status of women in your country? So coming from a country which is Pakistan, uh, the religion, uh, the main religion there is Islam, and uh, which is uh, Muslims are basically the majorities there. We as a Christians are minorities, and there are Hindus and some other religions too. But I would like to discuss the status of women in Pakistan. This is one of the systemic gender subordination, even though it varies considerably across class, region, and the rural-urban divide due to an even socioeconomic development and the impact of tribal, feudal, and capitalist social formation on women's life. The women in Pakistan have been constantly complaining of having been isolated from mainstream society. Women feel disillusioned on being maltreated by male-oriented setup in Pakistan. So that gives us a general idea, and you said that it varies on region, and so you grew up in the city, right? Yes, yes. So, but you said that in the countryside, some of these unequal inequality issues are much more prevalent. Yes. So what would you say are the biggest challenges for women in Pakistan? Okay. There are many problems that uh, a woman faces in a country like Pakistan. Uh, but the seven biggest problem I would like to discuss at this point. The number one is gender biases. Gender biases is where men are given unfair advantage over women under unquestionable circumstances. The second problem the woman faces in Pakistan is sexual harassment. This is the most common problem faced in Pakistan. Men continue to believe that a working woman is a public property and often attempt to take advantage of this. The third problem is women finding balance between work and personal life. Coming from a Pakistani background, the first and the foremost your family expects is to fulfill the demand of the house and taking care of responsibilities shared onto you by your elders. If you wish to be an independent woman, you will find yourself leading a double life of a professional worker and a cook at home, which does not give you any time for yourself. The fourth problem is education and marriage. Many fathers and mothers in Pakistan question the need of their daughter's desire to attain higher education, when instead uh, the daughters are expected to get married as early as possible. The fifth problem the women face in Pakistan is husband's insecurity. If you are married woman, if you are married working woman, you probably have to find yourself dealing with your husband's ego and ob obscure insecurities time and again. The sixth problem the women face in Pakistan is, what do people say? Whether you are a working woman or a housewife, there is always a threat of what people will say or think or how others will perceive you through their own judgment and opinions. Last but not least, rape and honor killing. These are the two problems that are parts and part and parcel of a bigger picture in Pakistan. But people completely tend to ignore this. It is justified by the excuse that the Islam protects modesty and tasks men with protecting inferior women.
Wow, that's a lot. But it seems like the, this list um, reflects some of the challenges that the Drug Conference Women's Ministries have identified as yes. global challenges as well. Yes. Um, do, uh, I realize that Pakistan has been in the news uh, lately. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. Um, concerning human rights violations and religious persecution as well. Yes. Christian women in particular, but men as well, are the target because of the traditional blasphemy laws that are still upheld in Pakistan. So would you explain to the church a little bit about what these laws mean and then tell us the story that hit the headlines recently? Yes. All right. Thank you, Ida. So uh, Pakistan is a Muslim country, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, well, the blasphemy law in Pakistan means when uh, there is a disrespectful statement or an action occurs by an individual against the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, uh, the Muslims have the Prophet Muhammad like we have Jesus as a prophet, so they have Prophet Muhammad. So the punishment for the blasphemy law ranges from a fine to an imprisonment or death. So I would like to share the most recent uh, story uh, that happened uh, recently in Pakistan. Uh, the most recent well-known example for blasphemy law is the case of a woman, Asya Bibi. In June 2009, Asya Bibi was accused of blasphemy after an argument with her co-worker while harvesting berries. She received less sympathy from her neighbors and Islamic religion leaders in country, some of whom adamantly called for her to be executed. She was subsequently arrested and imprisoned. In November 2010, a judge sentenced her to death by hanging. And we have a news clip for you right now that you can watch that was on CNN. So let's watch that. The grief and agony of two young girls who wait to see if the Pakistani government will execute their jailed mother. Whenever I see her picture, I cry, says 12-year-old Isham. This month, the Pakistani court sentenced Isham and Isha's mother, Asiya Bibi, to death. Not because she killed, injured, or stole, but simply because she said something. Prosecutors say Asiya Bibi insulted Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. They say the alleged incident happened when she was picking berries in this field in the town of Itanwali just about at two hours west of Lahore. Court records show Asiya was sharing a bucket of drinking water with fellow workers, but when she dipped her cup, her fellow workers refused the water, saying it had been touched by a non-Muslim woman. Asiya Bibi is a Christian. The women argued. Mafia Sitar and her sisters say they were there and heard Asiya's insults. She said your Muhammad had worms in his mouth before he died, Sitar told us. A crude way of saying Muhammad was no prophet. The town cleric Kari Salam reported the incident to police who arrested Bibi. After nearly 15 months in this jail came the conviction and the death sentence per section 295C of Pakistan's penal code. Whoever defiles the name of the Prophet Muhammad shall be punished with death 
or imprisonment for life. When I heard the decision, my heart ached, says Asiya's husband, who denies she ever insulted Muhammad. He says death threats forced him and his daughters, one of them disabled, to flee their village. Human rights groups have long blamed Pakistan's blasphemy laws for persecution and violence against religious minorities, like this attack last year on a Christian village and recent bombings of minority Muslim mosques. Activists say the government has refused to amend the law for fear of a backlash from Islamist groups and their followers, who deem scrapping the law is un-Islamic. Pakistan's law minister did not respond to our request for an interview. Should Asiya Bibi be hanged? In her hometown, the verdict? To death? A unanimous yes. The town cleric called Asiya's death sentence one of the happiest moments of his life. Tears of joy poured from my eyes, he said. The cleric's tears in stark contrast to those shed by two girls who want their mother to live. Reza Saya, CNN, Itanwali, Pakistan. When I first saw that clip, when you shared it with me, um, I saw those girls' eyes uh, full of tears, and we never got to hear the end of the story. Could you share what happened? Yes, uh, I would like to share the rest of the story. With this, uh, but before that, I would ask you to please uh, request a prayer that you pray with the story of Asya Bibi and many more like her who are helpless and cannot defend themselves. I sense that a difficult season is ahead of us. So please pray that we stand up against and not flee from darkness. Please pray for women and Christians that they would be treated equally and that believers would have the strength to survive the daily pressure of persecution. Amen. Amen. So, after sitting on the death row for more than 10 years, the story of Asya Bibi continues, and it tells us that the threat is still there. The price was made by assassination of two innocent people. First of, the first was minority minister Shahbaz Bhatti, who was a Christian, and the second was Punjab governor Salman Taseer, who was a Muslim. They both were assassinated for advocating on her behalf and opposing the blasphemy law. Asya Bibi family went into hiding after receiving death threats, some of which threatened to kill Asya if released from prison. Also, Al-Mulana clerk, Mulana Yusuf Qureshi, announced a bounty of 500,000 Pakistani rupees to anyone who would kill her. And the Christian wife and a mother, Asya Bibi, was acquitted of blasphemy charges in October 2018. However, today, to date, her life is still in grave danger from radical Islamists. Thank you, and she lives in Canada now? Yes. Okay. Yes, so finally uh, they, they moved her to Canada. 
but of course, uh, hers and her family life is still in grave because uh, anybody, if anybody would kill her, even in Canada, they are willing to do that. So they, they feel that they are doing a favor to their religion and their prophet. So still her life is not safe, but she is moved to Canada and has taken asylum there. Thank you. Heart-wrenching story, isn't it? Thank you. I'd like to thank you for um, bringing us this um, report, not only about you know this one special case, but you know there are many, many women and Christians today in parts of the world and in her part of the world that are facing um, these death threats and various other challenges. So there is time. Today is the time to pray and to really challenge some of these laws as we have heard already have been challenged by those brave individuals who are willing to stand up and even give their lives for this. So yes, there is darkness, gross darkness, defiling darkness and defying darkness. To us living in that world of darkness, the darkness outside, the darkness inside, and to us who want to minister to our daughters, our sisters, to mothers and wives, comes Isaiah's call, arise and shine, for your light has come. The psalmist cried out, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? You know, I shared the story of my children in the beginning of this sermon about finding their way to the Christmas tree. The darkness was only frightening to them that very first time because after that, they knew what was going on and they knew that light was waiting for them in the dark house. And so it is with us. The darkness should not frighten us because whom shall we fear? if the Lord is our light and salvation. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But he also said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You may be thinking, yes, I believe Jesus is light. I have read his beautiful, the stories where he touched lives and he healed people. And it is so refreshing to see Jesus in action. But me, light, I'm broken. I'm insufficient. My light is dim, if there is any light in me at all. But you know, Jesus doesn't ask us to strive to shine. He just says, let it shine, because he is the source. We do not have light in ourselves. We, do not, we cannot even make a little flicker of light, but Jesus is the source of our light. It is a heavenly irony that in the hands of God, brokenness is good. Jesus lived among the poor, 
worked among the downtrodden and rejected, lifted the afflicted and the abused, and finally he died on a cross. The most glorious manifestation of divine power was demonstrated with no outward glory at all. The greatest manifestation of power and glory was revealed in darkness and ugliness. This is why the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks. You know, Greek gods were strong and beautiful, and Jesus was not strong in that sense. And as according to Isaiah, had no outward beauty. The gospel was also scandalous to the Jews. Jesus, God's son, he touched lepers. He would hang with sinners, adulterers, and he washed the dirty feet of his disciples like a servant. This gospel was also a joke to the Romans. God hanging on the cross, really? None of them could understand the meaning of the servanthood of Jesus, nor could they comprehend the redemptive grace that froze from, a, from the cross. God's love was poured out on us through the broken body and broken heart of Christ for a broken world to heal our broken hearts and broken relationships. Throughout this life on earth, Jesus tried to communicate this truth that God's love shines through the darkness that he can shine through our brokenness. In Micah chapter 7, verse 8, Micah cries and, and speaks these words that we can all relate to because we have an enemy also. But Micah says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be my light. So Jesus can shine through us and he can shine through you. Psalm 119 so beautifully says that, that thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In Psalm 18, 28, the psalmist says, you, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. There may be dark moments in our lives. In fact, there will be dark moments in our lives. There may be times when you feel that the flame is just not there, that maybe it's just a tiny little flicker. But according to the word of God, it is he who keeps our light burning. And so do not ever get discouraged if you feel that somehow there is no more flame because all you have to do is turn to Jesus. And the word of God has never failed me. I'm going to tell you right now, I cherish my Bible. I take it with me wherever I go. I cannot leave it anywhere because it has to be with me. Because this is the one that's called the marked Bible. You know what I mean. I have many Bibles, but this is the one that has been marked. And it has been marked because it is those times, in those dark times when Jesus comes and shines his light into my life, I mark that in my Bible. 
and I write it down, I write a date, or I write a little bit of note to myself to remind me, because there will be more times like that. And I want to always find in the Word what my soul needs, and I want to go back to the source of light, because Jesus is my, the source of my light and my life. God is love, and God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. When by the Spirit of God the light of life shines within, His light will shine forth to those around us. There will be love in a world of coldness, joy instead of indifference, peace in times of sorrow, patience in the face of conflict, kindness when life gets rough, goodness that overcomes evil, faithfulness that dispels dishonesty, gentleness in a terrain of harshness, and self-control in a world of selfishness. We are challenged to leave our comfort zones and light up our world as we stand for justice, grace, and truth at work in our homes and in our churches. Your time has come. Arise and shine. May God shine his love into our hearts today and may it flow right through us and help us to light up our world. At this time, I'd like to invite the ladies and young ladies of our church to come and light one of our tea lights here in the front that are placed on the table. And one is going to light the, the big light right here. You know, as we set this table, uh, it, I just realized as I was looking on that there are three candles here. You know, we can have God the Father and Jesus and His Holy Spirit uh, to channel that light into our lives. So right now, ladies, come on up, and we have more lighters. We'd like for you to light a candle and hold it. Stay here in the front and hold your light. And then we will have a closing song. Please stand for the benediction. Oh Lord, we are right here in your presence holding our candles, Lord. It is just a little light, but it represents our heart's desire, Lord, this morning to be used by you. Lord, we want to be open to your spirit daily so you can fill us with your love and then take that love into this world. This is a dark place, Lord, but in your presence there is light. And we want to take that presence with us wherever we are, into our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Father, I pray that you will empower us to be lights, to light up, the world, our world, that you have, where you have placed us. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.